Hello, I'm Zoe Pollock, Artistic Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Love and Wonder, a series of collected conversations recorded live at the 2022 Byron Writers Festival, held on the lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. This session, titled Nature and Inspiration, features authors Emily Brugman, Ashley Hay, and Christus Schulkes in conversation with Jill Eddington. Ashley Hay, uh, I'm going to cut the intros a bit short today just because our time is a bit short. But to say nothing else about Ash is she's award-winning writer, a novelist, essayist, and previous and just recently retired editor of the Griffith Review, which consumed her time as a writer. <laughs> so we're glad she's back writing again. Um, Gum is a, a book of narrative non-fiction. Uh, it was first published in 2002 and has been republished with a new chapter just recently. So thank you, Ash. On the end is Christos Cholkis, uh, in case you got confused which Christos he is. Which <laughs> um, he, of course... The real he, one, I promise. <laughs> he, he is, of course, a highly uh, award-winning author of seven novels, many of which have joined bestseller lists nationally and internationally and been turned into films that most of you will know and TV shows. Seven and a Half is his latest and possibly one of the most fascinating mm. novels um, you could read. Uh, it's tender celebration of sensuality and nature and memory, and I'm sure you'll all love reading it. It's such an intriguing book. In the middle, bookended by these other two, is our newest um, and first novelist, Emily Brugman, but she, many of you will know her as part of the festival team. She's a startling new literary talent, and I don't say that just because I know Emily. She seriously is. The Islands is her first novel. It was runner-up in the Vogel Award. This novel went on to be published alongside of the winning novel because it was too, too good to miss. Mm. Um, it's a personal and poignant story, and uh, I, I invite you to read it, please, when you, we finish today. So you couldn't find a, a greater group of people. So welcome to this session. Sit back and enjoy. We've only got 45 minutes and we're going to cover as much as we can. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. So Rachel Carson says, those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure them as long as life lasts. And I thought that fitted all three of these books so beautifully and that leads us into the conversation. And I just wondered if the three of you would reflect, please, for me. Do you glean ideas from nature or is it the solace that nature provides you as a writer that is most important? Straight in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's both. I don't think there's any way of it only being one or the other and, and I'm not even sure that it's that binary. I think, I think it is... Um, it's an exchange. It's, it's a place of extraordinary inspiration and extraordinary reflection. I mean, obviously, for a book called Gum about eucalypts, um, you couldn't really do it without... Pretty literal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. But, um, but I think thinking about, um, thinking about writing fiction and thinking about writing other non-fiction, I think it, it feeds in both ways. It's often a character, it's often a metaphor, it's often 
an inspiration. It's often a, um, uh, a helpmate when you get lost, when you're not quite sure where you're going. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's it's both those things and, and many, many others, and it changes with every book um, or every project, and that's that's part of what is extraordinary about its resource, is a terrible word, but about what it what it offers. Mm. Emily? I think that I agree with Ash. It, it happens on both levels. To be in nature, to... Um, Settle into the quietness of nature, of course, helps us to connect with our ideas. But, yeah, in, in the actual writing process, when you're trying to imagine yourself into a fictional world, um, all life happens in nature, doesn't it? It helps to try and reach for the sort of sensual detail mm. around you, smells and touches and tastes and, and whatever it is that you're trying to evoke in that scene. It's central to um, creating a, a world in mm. fiction. Mm. Lovely. And Christos, your character in the lead character in the book actually sits in nature to write this, yeah. the book within the book. I, mean, I, I was thinking, just listening to Emily and Ash talk about it, Jill, that, you know, I was thinking part of my process in writing is every morning I have a studio space that is maybe a 25, half an hour walk from home and that, that walk, which is in a city, you know, it's not in a city is what I mean. Uh, so it's not in uh, kind of the beauty that is here in, um, in, this, in this kind of space, but... It is something in the walking, something mm. in the responding to what you hear, what you smell, what is around you, feels really important to getting prepared for the, the writing work. Mm. Once you're writing, you're, you're absolutely right, Emily, kind of you're responding to everything. There's no separation. That's one of the strange questions, right? Like, mm. we are always in nature. Mm. That's, uh, I'm, I, I, as you were speaking, Ash, I was thinking, and I'm... Embarrassed, but a great Persian novel that I remember reading a long time ago, and it was a, a young person in a room, and they never escape the room. Mm. And by the end of the novel, you understand the whole room. Kind of that's 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 about being able to listen and respond to to nature. And you know, with seven and a half, the character, what he does is he puts away the phone. Mm. He puts away the devices because I'm finding that. Unless I do that, I just actually can't listen to the world anymore. Mm. It, because it distracts you from what is around you. Um, yes. Takes yes. your attention. It yeah. makes me less... It, it, it actually makes me less questioning, I think. Mm. It, it, as a, and I think as a writer, you need to question all the time. You need to question yourself. You need to question the... Uh, y yes, there's something... It feels like an addiction to me. Mm. Um, and I don't want it to be either or I'll sound like an old, the old guy, you know, I keep saying the Grandpa Sim Simpson character. I use those devices for information. For, mm -hmm. But in terms of what we do as writers and how you get to be able to write something like The Islands and be, bring us into the world I knew, startling was mm. absolutely the right word, you have to take that time to listen and respond to the world. Yeah, mm. yeah. We'll come back to your character and where he sits mm. later. I wanted to go, Ashley, 
your book, obviously, it's clear that, you know, nature has always been an inspiration for you. People sometimes refer to you as a science writer, sometimes <laughs> as a nature writer, sometimes as a novelist, you know. But all of them, you know, the, mm. that nature is, is very important. Um, and in this... It's actually an ode to Gumtree, I would say. Um, and I just wondered what led you in the path of writing a book about a gum tree? <laughs> what was the inspiration? Was it being in the world of gum trees? Well, I did. Where I grew up, there are a lot of trees. And so I grew up not looking at them in the way that you don't really see the landscape that you're immersed in, but completely surrounded by eucalypts and turpentines and bush. And that was? on the south coast of New South Wales. The trick about gum is there's an awful lot about trees in there, but it's actually a book about people. Mm. And, um, and what I wanted to do with it was find a different way of writing about Australia, about colonial Australia, the kind of colonial or the ongoing colonial project of Australia. And so using the trees was a great way of looking at different people who had intersected with the trees in different ways, mm -hmm. different conversations people had with the trees, foresters, artists, um, botanists, writers, poets, train drivers, everyone. So the trees are, are sort of everything in the book and not the book as well, which is interesting. But I, I think um, they're always, I, I, you know, they're, they've always been all around me. Um, I think this book just let me be more honest about how much I paid attention to them and how much I talked to them. Um, and the amazing thing about, you know, having the privilege of this book coming back into the world has been re-establishing my closeness with these trees and these characters. There's some beautiful little facts that you find out as you're reading that I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, so I was surrounded by trees too, so I completely, they're immersed in my DNA, I think. Mm. A single red gum, home to how many insects? I think it's about 4,000. Um, and, and, I mean, that's just one. that <laughs> Somebody yeah. collected everything from or counted everything in. Um, and I love, I mean, as a novelist, we think in metaphors, I think. That's, what, that's our sort of, you know, we're always... Um, looking for those connections and those images. And so there's something in that of a single tree. It's its own beautiful entity. It's its own complex entity. But it's also this extraordinary system that supports 4,000 insects in one instance. Um, and I think the more you think about what a tree is, you know, that sort of... Um, that sort of conversion of, of sugar and light into life or that, that, that sort of exchange of energy, it's, a, it's just paradise if you are someone who gets excited by a metaphor. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Which hopefully all three of you do, <laughs> or you obviously do. Um, Emily, this is a beautiful new novel. It's a story of a family, I'm assuming some heritage of yours, you know, um, that's an assumption we make as readers often that may or may not be true. It's a book about isolation and displacement, but it's also so um, sort of optimistic. Where is this island? Tell us about it. Sure, yeah. So uh, the, uh, the book begins uh, on the Abrolhos Islands, which is a cluster of um, kind of 
low-lying coral atolls about 60 kilometres off the coast of Geraldton in Western Australia. And the island on which my fictional family live, the Sari family, is called Little Rat. (laughs) And this was also the island where my own grandfather had a fisherman's shack and worked the cray boats in the 1960s and 70s and the place where my mum and her sisters used to visit during the fishing season. And, yeah, so that's kind of where the story began and was inspired You you use a very clever tool or... or way of setting the novel out, which we discussed earlier, we're all fascinated by it, of actually each chapter is named after a piece of nature, be it driftwood or sea lion or ray, you know. It's just such a beautiful way. Can you just tell us the story of that a little bit, just why you did that? Yeah, sure. Um, So the book began as a collection of short stories that were less linked than what they are now. And so with each chapter or story, um, you know, it was a a complete kind of parcel, I suppose, um, in which I thought about the journey that the character would take uh, and how they would change emotionally. um, And I looked always for a metaphor to kind of ground the chapter in um, that would represent perhaps the change that happened in that character. And often the metaphor that I found was um, a detail from the natural world. I hope those young writers are listening out there. (laughs) Um, Emily, would you share with us just a section? I'm going to ask each of them to read a short passage because I think it's the best way to... Immerse ourselves. <laughs> sure. Uh, so this is from chapter two and the chapter is called Coral. It was a good place for getting pregnant, the women on the islands joked, by which they meant that once the boats were in and the fishing was done, there was little else to do. Yes, the islands had a way of coaxing you into the quiet belly of a tin hut on a lazy afternoon. There, rough working hands found smooth skin. They pushed aside the threadbare cotton of a summer dress and a muffled gasp might escape the curtained window to mingle with the lapping water all around. It was a rather fertile place, thought Alvasari, as she lay in the groggy aftermath of lovemaking, although at first glance it appeared as barren as a salt flat. The low-lying landmass looked as though it could go under at any moment, on a sudden rise in swell at a turn of the weather. The ground they walked on was dry as bone, the skeletal remains of coral bodies deposited over thousands of years by the push and pull of the current. Only the hardy saltbush proffered a scant carpet here, and succulents shot through the cracks in the veiny skin of the dried reef bed. But the sea was pulsing with life. Groper darted beneath the keels of dinghies, oysters clung to the rocky shoreline in clusters, and blooming coral heads with creeping tendrils decorated the seabed in blinks of red, green and blue. At first they appeared as flora, but on closer inspection revealed themselves as fleshy creatures, 
Alva had seen the soft innards within the hard limestone casing when she had scooped up a piece of fresh floating coral and broken it open in the palm of her hand. Thank you. So you get the sense of the power of this novel just from that. Christos, we were talking a little earlier about craft and you do like to talk about the craft of writing. This is probably one of the most complex books I've read in terms of style and form and layers. And I said to Christoph that when I stood back and thought about it, it was like looking at layers of strata of sandstone. It's not circular. It's nothing within yeah. something else. It's, it's this layered book. Can you give the audience just a little sense of that structure but how you did that by placing the the writer, who's called Christos. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, there's the twist on the autobiographical, if you like. Um, yeah, by placing Christos in this very beautiful place, as you said, away from all the, the tools of day-to-day -to -day life. So just talk to us about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, there's uh, the, the, what happens in Seven and a Half, and it's called Seven and a Half because it's actually my eighth book, and it's a homage to a Fellini movie called Eight and a Half, which is... <laughs> a film about a filmmaker who doesn't know what film to make next. And so it's <laughs> a film about that. And in a way, it, it is what happens in Seven and a Half Years, a writer called Christos, who tells you really early on that he's lying, <laughs> that you don't be yeah. careful about believing us, yeah. uh, goes to the South Coast. And that's a connection the three of us yeah. have on this panel of yeah. New South Wales. And he wants to escape the world. And part of escaping the world is also escaping the kind of the, the din, the white noise of the world at the moment. Everyone being very partisan, everyone being very angry, everyone being full of rage. Mm. And he wants to discover beauty. Mm. And can he write beauty? And he, he says to the reader, um, there are three books I'm thinking about writing and one of them is, is to talk about my childhood. Mm. And, and one is to write a story called Sweet Thing, which is the novel within the novel, and then the other one is to tell you what is it like to be a writer, really. What, and for me, Jill, yeah, it's a complicated novel, but it came out, I think, you would know this too, Emily, from, from the stories you've written. Like, I know that this is your first novel, but every work, and you would know this, Ash, every work response to the previous work. So I'd just mm. written a novel called Damascus, mm. which was a very difficult process uh, mm. about the, the beginning of Christianity. And mm. it, uh, whereas Seven and a Half felt quite joyous mm. to actually go, this mm. is what I do. This is, this is why I write because of the pleasure in, in writing and responding to the world. And one of the things that I think happens in Seven and a Half, and this is the connection to the question of faith in Damascus, right? After Damascus, even though I cannot call myself Christian, I don't know what I am. I'm truly agnostic. You know, mm. I'm dealing with, I don't know. Mm. But I learned how to be grateful and I know this world is fucked. Mm. I know you've, you know it much more than um, I do at the moment because of what you've been through with the floods, right? But I was, you know, that there's... But, uh, but there's you'd so experienced much, fires, hadn't you, too? I had experienced... Some some of the fires, not as much as people I know on the south coast who mm. kind of have mm. been through it. But I also love this world. Mm. So after writing, I, I wake up every morning in gratitude, just to have 
be in this world. So, and, mm. and seven and a half is also the memory stuff. And I don't want to take up too much mind, but time, but I was thinking what you were saying about the strata. Mm. Is, thank, is thankful for my partner who loves the garden. He's taught me about nature. Thank you to my dad and my mum who also loved the natural world in a way that I, can't, I, I, I didn't know. They, they responded to it in a... Oh, they grew up in a rural world where they, mm. they could hear the seasons, they could hear the change of time, they could hear the earth and the rocks. And I wanted to say a thank you in this book to, mm. to that, mm, mm. To, being, to having that. Yeah, there's a, a, there's a real sense of homage to, to nature, you know, in it. And not to some, sorry, yeah, yeah. not to some saccharine. No. I think to be really confront nature yeah. is to confront that it can also be terrible. Mm. Yeah. You know, and it's all that, that it's not... Again, this for me is this battle that I've been doing with a Christian legacy for a long time, the body and the soul, right? Mm. I am both body and soul. You are both body and soul. Mm. That, and the world is both terrible and beautiful. Mm. How, do we, how do we make sense of that? That's a really... That, that's what yeah. I'm trying to do in... Yeah. And, and there's some beautiful quotes in the book and, you know, around that very thing, that struggle, you know, uh, between the two... Um, so I was just thinking, I'm going to jump to your reading actually now. I was going to do it later, but I'm going to jump to it because I, I think it's relevant here because there's almost a sense of um, if there was a spirituality bit about animism in this, yeah. you know. And we were talking earlier about what what are the parameters of nature, you know. How, when you look up definitions of nature, it excludes humans. It excludes, you know, you know the literal dictionary definition. But it can't. You're a nature writer. And just give us quickly, you know, what would your definition... And then I'm going to come back to Christos and get him to do his reading for us. That's impossible, dude. <laughs> um, you know, how, I, how, what are the well, parameters? I, I, think, I think we have to be careful because I think there's a shorthand that says nature is, um, is wildness or wilderness somehow. Mm. Um, but it is everywhere. It is. I'm, I'm just in the process of um, reading... Indira Naidu's beautiful book, The Space Between the Stars. Now, the nature she is turning to for healing in that book are the weeds that grow in the pavement mm. in Potts Point, you know, one tree in Sydney's Botanic Gardens, not the big sort of vista. And I think something I've been thinking about the past few days is we talk about human nature and it feels to me like we've, you know, you've, you've got to get back to that sort of relationality to have a, a proper definition rather than doing the us and them thing. But just picking up on what Christos was saying and that lovely idea of the stratas, and I think going back too to your question about, you know, that which feeds what or what does it mm. do, there's that gorgeous line in Seven Half where you talk about synchrony being essential to any artist's work. And I think we all know that. Like, mm. we know the way the world feeds us. We start thinking of something and it throws something at us in a way we perceive as random. But that sort of synchronous exchange goes back to the first question you asked and also I think speaks to me about how the it feels your book came together and all of that has to be part of this whole world nature is the world in a way mm. maybe it's yeah. the planet it's the whole lot mm. yeah so the body is definitely part of or uh, of nature in your book and and the sensuality of nature and body overlap don't they I was thinking this when we were right at the mm. beginning right I, and I have talked about this before, but I, always, I think it's really important. One of the greatest lessons I learned as a writer, I'm going to 
was when uh, one of my novels was turned into um, a t a television and, and film, but also working in theatre and listening to actors and their process and actually going, oh, getting into character, they taught me skills about how to hold myself in the character that I've created. Mm. Mm. What will she sound like? How does she hold a coffee? How does she walk? Mm. And that's been a remarkable gift mm. given to, to, to me by actors. To say, and I would say to any of you who are writers in the audience, to think about that, like to actually embody it in your body because it is through the body, it is through our senses that we create our words and we find our metaphors and we find our voice, which is mm. also important as, mm. as a writer. Would you share your reading with us, please? Yes. And I'll shut up. <laughs> no, don't. It's too... How can three quarters of an hour possibly do this justice? <laughs> Once, travelling through Italy as a young man, I saw Constantine Brancusi's birding flight at the Peggy Guggenheim collection in Venice. I was enraptured. Metal wrought into spirit by an artist's invention. Bronze brought alive. So captivated was I by its beauty that I leant in and grazed it with my lips. It was the slightest kiss and I meant it as gratitude. Of course, the guards, once notified of my transgression, escorted me roughly out of the museum. But I was whistling as they flung me through the doors. What did I care? I'd kiss creation. Here on the beach, I'm returned to the sculpture, the same graceful curl, the same intimation of a birth of a force emerging. I walk near to the rock formation, study them, but then my attention is caught by the magnificence of the sea. The bay is small, a pearl-shaped cradling, and the calm quartz of the water has a lightness and a depth that reminds me of the impossible blue with which one painted the ocean as a child. I drop my runners near the rocks and run to the water, let it gurgle and tickle and lap at my feet. Ahead, across the infinite expanse of cobalt majesty, the sky is clear, the illumination absolute. I turn around to survey the position of the sun, which is still to reach its zenith, when my attention is caught by a titan that rises from the sand. It is an illusion formed by my standing at an oblique angle to the two boulders. Yet knowing this does not dispel the awe I experience. The two stone forms no longer seem separated. The squatter figure appears joined to its giant sibling to form the front leg of a colossus that now dominates the shore. And what seemed a jumble of lopsided shapes and outcrops of the larger rock now formed the head and the neck, the chest and the torso of the giant. He does seem to be lunging forwards. There are even massive arms at his side, as if he has broken free from an underground prison and is taking his first liberated strides on the earth. I am absolutely still. I do not wish to ruin this wondrous hallucination. And in the next paragraph, that creature becomes... A character. Your character. Yeah. yeah. And that just is the synchronicity yeah. Ash was talking about, the accident. That, that's how it works. There is... Don't get me... There's the absolute thinking and thinking and editing and editing and working and working that is part of what we do, right? Mm. But there is also having to be alive to accident. Mm. 
and, mm. and that's what I'm, I mean about listening, what we all mean about listening, mm. you know. Mm. Mm. Um, it brings me to two points. One is about language, and we talked before, because of the temptation sometimes with writers, and I think this is what puts a great book next to a good book, <laughs> is to be, when they're talking about nature, is to exaggerate, to use flowery language, to use language that... And there must be such a fine line for the three of you to get that right. You can sense from the tone, you know, I'm yet to get to Ash's reading, but similarly, how do you make sure that it sounds good? What do you do as writers? Emily? Uh, well, <clears throat> we spoke briefly about this earlier, but I... Um for me, at least at the moment, you know, being... I've just finished my first book. I don't know that... Um, I think it was more intuitive the way that I... Um, I guess it, it was a journey of finding my style, really, you know, over the last six years of writing the book. Um, but I think that the cadence of the language coincidentally or not does match um, the setting of the book, which mm. is sparse, uh, and the um, character of the people who are quiet and inward and don't say too much. Um, so I think I, you know, have tried to kind of intuitively balance that there, perhaps, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And the silences in it at times, and the, but the silences are often shown by the crunching of the car, you know, in that extract yeah. you heard, you know, the silences are shown by the other sounds that, that they're hearing, which is, which is fantastic. Ash, do you read aloud? What do you do to make sure it doesn't, you know, that it sounds right? Yeah, I do, I do um, read everything aloud. Chris and I was saying that's part of the editing process. I think probably what I do is put too much there and then keep taking things away. Um, but the rhythm feels very important, um, like just even at a sort of syllable level. Mm. Um, my son's in year eight at the moment and he comes home, has come home through his school career with lots of rules about writing, like that you can't have a one-word sentence and things like that. And I delight in horrifying him. <laughs> by saying those rules you can break. Um, yeah, but no, I think the sound is is very important and particularly when you're writing place, not just in nature writing, but in any kind of, any kind of writing, I think you're trying to evoke senses for the reader. You're trying to make them hear something. You have, you have little black marks on white paper and you want them to hear and you, you hope they will feel and you hope they will smell and taste, you know, you, you're hoping to evoke all of those responses. And so, yeah, I think it's about really being careful with where everything mm. sits. Mm. And Christos, just, you know, for you, what's that editing? You, do you, again, similarly, you read aloud, you said earlier? And uh, I mean, I think that was, you know, it took a long time that to, to think about what we do as the craft of what we do. There is... Mm. I'm kind of jealous, Emily, with the, the first novel. Is, mm. There's the rawness because you don't know what... You're finding it completely through instinct. Uh, I think clearly through what you've read as well, right? That, that what you've yeah. seen, that becomes inspiration. But you are... It is, to me, all about editing. And part of the process of editing is 
the speaking it aloud because you were so. How do I know the word is too flowery or too saccharine or or not or or not right? right. Is I hear it and uh, and a friend, a mentor, taught me this when I was so very young. I'll read it and then I just put uh, WW, which is means wrong word. Um, and because sometimes you can get bogged down on the line and keep going back and keep going back and then you, if, uh, whereas for me it's let me get the voice, mm. let me try and find the voice and then I can go back and do the correcting. Mm. Mm. Um, Beautiful. Um, one of the things we did talk about, the thing in common with all three of these is books, is there's an eye of people who've come... Obviously, they're not First Nations people. They've come to Australia with a, with a different eye over this place and a different language to put to place. Mm. And obviously, Ash, yours very literally when she explains to us through this book the taxonomy of the, the names and the... And I hate to say it, but at my age, I suddenly realised the name Banksia, I just, oh my God, <laughs> how have I not worked out the origin of that word before? You know, I've just thought of it as a Banksia. And, um, and that not being named after a white colonial, you know, it, it seemed such an Australian name to me. It was impossible to think it was anything else. Um, so we were saying how each of you, the different cultures in, you know, Finnish and the Greek and, and the English coming in, um, does it, does it change the way we see things if we have a different language or a sense of, you know, does it allow us to look at things differently? And that brings us to, you know, we're reflecting on the idea that by name, as we are now, luckily starting to name things like instead of Julian Rocks, Nathangali, you know, it, it makes us think differently. Mm. So I wanted, Ash, would you talk to us about this, you know, very patronising colonial way in which the nature started and then also the reflection in the last chapter mm. of your book. Maybe you'd like to start with the reading, whichever way. Well, I think this is really um, the work that I wanted to try to do with Gum was look at the way, um, you know, a bunch of primarily blokes turned up in an extraordinary place and, uh, and saw it through the prism of the other side of the world. Um, and how they named it, how long it took them to get the words, even to be able to name or, or recreate the right green for different foliage, how they, how they came and started labelling things in an entirely different language. There's one collector very early in the early 1800s, um, George Cayley, who is the first uh, white collector, the first English collector, who actually does um, go out collecting with um, the First Nations people all around the Cumberland Plain uh, and does ask, what is the name of this tree? What are the properties of this tree? That's a really remarkable thing to think that this man did in the very early 1800s. Um, it's, it's both wonderful and terrible that it sort of, you know, he gets lost in the archives. But what was really fascinating for me about him is the conversations that he's having with the people he's collecting with, he's also the first person to understand through his conversations with them how easily eucalypts hybridise, which is a kind of piece of knowledge that we think of as much more modern scientific understanding. So part of what I wanted to do with gum was look at how this outside gaze came in, 
how it, what it saw when it arrived here and how it failed to see other things and how that changed through different, the, the gaze of different disciplines. Um, again, the, the artists, the poets, the, uh, the firemen, the conservationists. When I came back to the book to, to, you know, have the luxury of a new chapter and a sort of new ending for it, how the language we use to talk about uh, place in Australia and the work that we do as nature writers in Australia has changed across the 20 years since Gum first came out was also really interesting to me. There were a lot of different, just subtle changes to make around very small bits of language, bigger ideas. There was more information about some of the actions that some of the explorers I wrote about. You know, there was more information about massacres that had come to light in those last 20 years. So it was interesting to me to look at the way the language um, and the understanding had changed across that time. The bit that I'm going to read actually has two um, quotes from people who aren't me, uh, who just say things better than I can. Um, <laughs> so this is a little bit from the new epilogue to the book. One of the most recent things I've read about a gum tree is not science, not history, not anyone's classificatory or botanical endeavour, but the telling of a different kind of truth. This is from Billa Yaradangalangdurai, Wiradjuri author Anita Heiss's beautiful novel of language, longing, and the Marambidja, the Marambidji River's passage through Wiradjuri land, set in the colonial 19th century. Early in the book, there is a leave-taking, a daughter travelling away against her will. Anita writes, the older women have moved in closer around her, trying to absorb her distress. The men are preparing a fire to smoke her and themselves, to cleanse away all the worry, the concern, the fear they share about her leaving the clan. The children walk to the centre of the circle, with some small branches of eucalyptus leaves, which they have pulled carefully from low-hanging branches, knowing that they are only ever to take what comes easily to them, what the land wants them to have. The respect, the generosity in this sharing, this transfer, this trade. In Northwest Australia, First Nations knowledge has been shared about an integral connection between the Gadga tree, Corimbia, Polycarpa in Linnaean taxonomy, and the Gullarabulu people, about the intersection between living country and an understanding of life as networked and sustained among humans and non-humans. Around Broome, one scholar writes, people evoke the concept of Lian, a feeling for country as a general concept for multi-species interaction linked to vitality and growth, which feeds into the multiple nodes of belonging that need to be in place for ceremony to be successful. This concept of mutual sustainability is a long way from how the Gadga is classified botanically, where its being is positioned and identified in the process of translating it into Corimbia polycarpa. The Narragu scholar and writer Jacqueline Troy speaks to a similar idea when she says, first peoples worldwide have fundamentally and always understood trees to be community members. They are not entities that exist in some biological separateness, given a Linnaean taxonomy and classed with other non-sentient beings. Trees, she writes, are part of our mob, part of our human world 
and active members of our communities with lives, loves, and feelings. When we destroy trees, she writes, we destroy ourselves. Thanks, Ash. I'm, I'm really sad to say that we've come to the end of our time. I'd have loved to have an hour and a half with these guys, as I'm sure you would have. Um, but we have a really wonderful thing to do next. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind, please, joining with me and thanking Christos, Emily and Ashley. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session is recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2022. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com forward slash digital.